Hello and welcome to Access Chat. This week we're delighted to be joined by Philida Swift, who is the CEO of Face Equality International. It's the second time that we've welcomed uh, Face Equality International to Access Chat. We previously welcomed James Partridge on, and sadly, James has died last year. Um, big loss to the community, but but Philida is, is filling his shoes. And, and so um, I'm really delighted that, that we could welcome you today to, to talk about the topic again, because it's a super important topic, and to tell us a bit more about what you're doing, how you came to be in the role, uh, uh, and uh, you know, you've raised some topics really recently around one of the, the, the sort of big um, media events. Um, so, so there's a lot to talk about. So welcome, Philida. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So first off, tell us how you came to be um, working in this, this field of advocacy. Um, yeah, sure. So um, you've mentioned James, who is just an incredible human being to have crossed paths with in life. And I say all of the time that it's a worthy shadow to be living in now that I've kind of taken over the reins of Face Equality International. But we had worked together um, for a while, both through Changing Faces UK, which is the charity that he set up in 1992, um, and we started working there together um, in, I'd say, 2017, when the first ever Face Equality Day was launched in the UK. Um, and before that, I had been working in campaigns for Changing Faces. And my first entry into this space was actually after I was in a car accident in 2015. And I came out with a whole host of different injuries, but the most significant one was a laceration to the front of my face. And I came out of that accident with significant scarring. And similarly to James, that was at a young age. I was 22. I was at university. I was a young woman who did the average thing that every other young woman does wear makeup, like to get dressed up, be susceptible to a certain beauty ideal. Um, so all of a sudden, having something stamped across my face that is largely seen in, in society as ugly or the mark of a villain, never something that someone would want to have, particularly as a young woman. And I went in search of organizations support groups someone who would understand what this was like what I was going through this readjustment to my new face and I found changing faces and I reached out and to this day I feel so privileged to live somewhere where that resource where that group where that community existed and I haven't looked back I got involved I have met some incredible people who we can really kind of connect on a level and I started out as a media volunteer for that organization had some slightly questionable experiences sharing my story in the in the press and in tabloids and them sensationalizing it all and 
that led me to want to stay involved in the campaign but take a bit of a backseat and and that led me to get involved at Changing Faces where I worked on things like the I Am Not Your Villain campaign and also on a campaign to counteract hate crime which was funded by the Home Office um, and then the moment I tried to leave I got poached by James Partridge to come and work for Face Equality International and we all thought that after he left Changing Faces in 2017 that he was going to go away and retire and settle down a little bit but that's just not who James was so he wanted to take the mission global he wanted to take the Face Equality campaign across the world recognizing that wherever someone might be in the world living with a disfigurement comes with a great deal of stigma a great deal of prejudice a great inequality of access um, to education to healthcare um, and we have since built a membership of 36 organizations around the world and together we campaign to counteract the discrimination that people experience um, and to enable people to live the life they choose so that's a slightly long-winded whistle stop <laughs> tour of Faith Equality International Neil, please unmute. Well done, uh, amateur, amateur hour here. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there. That's a fantastic uh, summary. Um, obviously, the, the the stuff about the media is an ongoing concern. Um, but I'm really interested in uh, the the coalition. That, that James and, and yourself have built and, and also maybe you could tell us a little bit more about you mentioned how facial disfigurement is impacting people's access to healthcare. now that's probably not something that people are really aware about can you tell us a little bit more about why that happens yeah so it's an area that is Across the board, disfigurement is an area that is massive, mass, massively, massively neglected and under-researched. There is, however, more and more studies coming out that talk about how the level of stigma attached to disfigurement, similarly to disability, particularly in parts of the world where the moral model still exists. So perhaps this disfigurement being a mark of sin, a mark of the devil. And that means that people are so overcome by shame that they will not come forward and access vital health care. There's a study going on at the moment um, at the Centre for Appearance Research which is based out of the University of the West of England in Bristol. And they're doing a study about the Somali community and how Somali culture impacts the way that people will access support or surgical intervention or come forward and be willing to talk about disfigurement or access healthcare. <laughs> um, so it's an area that is really, really under under research, but it's not to say that this is just something experienced in 
the majority world, it's actually happening right here in the UK. We know that stigma and shame and wanting to access perhaps psychosocial support around disfigurement. We know that women are far likely to come forward and talk about this stuff um, and that men are less likely to want to access support or access things like skin camouflage if there's a condition that can be covered by skin camouflage um, and also just less likely to come forward for surgical interventions and those sorts of services as well. Okay. So, so that, that whole sort of societal model of sin and uh and, and and maybe even having done stuff in a past life and being impacted by that, I, I fully understand. Um, I know Antonio's got a question, so I'm going to hand over to him. But I was, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm still, whilst I understand it, I'm still shocked by just and, how much. Yeah. And that moral model is not to say that it's necessarily tied to religion, actually. In the UK, we say things all of the time, like everything happens for a reason or we are kind of that bit more spiritually kind of open. And I know that in Christianity, we hear terms like God only gives us what we can handle. Not to say that that is something that I associate with or that I'm religious in any way, but it's something that has become more kind of secular and more ingrained in society is everything happens for a reason and the shame that comes from that and the sense that okay well what have I done to make me deserving of this why is it me that's having to put up with this and also that goes into the societal view as of the individual as well um so it's not necessarily just about religion it's it's actually across all society in, in terms of advocacy in, in, and communication, what type of challenges you still have when, uh, when doing advocacy and communicating, in, for example, in social media? Because I'm sure uh, some of the stigmas will, will, will be very present in the channels as well. Social media for people with disfigurements right now is really, really problematic. In fact, there's a case going on at this very moment where on Twitter, a member of our community who has a craniofacial condition, so a condition that they were born with that affects their facial appearance, they've had their photo, a selfie, blurred out by Twitter um, and marked as sensitive content. And again, I know that this happens with people with disabilities and with disfigurements, and whether it's an algorithm or a moderator or a human blurring someone's face out and marking it as sensitive and censoring the community in this way, it highlights the dangers and the potential harms of artificial intelligence and algorithms and how they disproportionately impact upon people with disfigurements. And understandably, there are methods in place to prevent people from being able to search Things like self-harm, because there are kind of darker areas of the internet. Um, but that has meant that also entire accounts that are devoted to celebrating things like scars have been removed um, and have been erased. And in doing that, 
it erases the experiences and the vital community that we desperately need. Um, and it just is another example of being told that people's experiences are invalid and that we're not worthy of being able to access something like social media in the same way. So social media is difficult. <laughs> um, and there's also a lot of hate. There's a lot of difficult reasons why a lot of our community members will choose not to have their photos on their social profiles for fear of being abused or for fear of actually having their photos taken and used as memes to perhaps mock or even to incite hatred. Um, there's a case right now of someone having had a video that they contributed to for a really positive advocacy kind of awareness raising story and it's being used completely out of context and they've taken this person's story um, and basically made it up made up some narrative around it to say and actually used another person as like a before and after and this is the person with the a birthmark on their face and they've pulled in this other video of this other human um and made out like she's had this transformation um so that's been a massive violation of someone um and we see the same levels of kind of inspiration porn and all of the other wonderful things that people with disabilities have to put up with online and shouldn't have to put up with online and the responsibility of the social platforms to have to handle this stuff is is just not where it should be um so yeah it's a it's it's a really tricky space to be uh, and okay, there's something that you no know, I I'm, I really need to I have to ask you after after your comment and answer uh, how you are dealing with with you no know, taking care of the mental health of those individuals what is being done how you, you know how the community is able to come together uh, to support each other you know uh, offline what is being done there just to take care of people just for for them not don't don't feel disencouraged. Yeah, so there are, again, it, as an international organisation, we are reliant upon our members wherever they might be in the world and they are doing that support. Um, they are doing that psychosocial support. They're running peer support. They're doing the whole works and they are doing an incredible job of that. Um, that being said, we know that there are, significant proportions of the world where there is just nothing and again just to reiterate how privileged I felt to be able to have a service a community to access um, and there may well be an organization that delivers surgical intervention perhaps but that doesn't mean to say that they have any provision for well-being needs um, and that doesn't matter where someone is in the world um the, addressing the the psychosocial needs of this community and integrating that into existing healthcare is a massive massive gap um and it's something that i've written about very recently for a medical journal 
is the the lack of understanding um, from healthcare professionals as to someone's needs. And even within developed healthcare systems, again, just the, the lack of integration of effective care. James Partridge, again, our founder, did an incredible job in the UK of, as a burn survivor, of ensuring that burn care and burn rehabilitation fully built in well-being and psychosocial support um but there's a still a really really long way to go and this again is across the world doesn't matter where it is yeah. so I, I i was also reading articles this week um at a slightly different tangent but that that, that is definitely related where um medical professionals who are experiencing long covid are suddenly realizing how lacking in empathy um, the, the medical profession is and how uh, they they are finding that even their colleagues are not believing them even though they are part of the the medical profession so 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 maybe there will be a shift in the long term should they regain enough energy to to return to work to be able to to change the mindset, to believe people when they tell them that there, there is a an impact or they are affected, because because this was something that 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 was being reported and and quite frequently, yeah, it was skewed towards women being disbelieved rather than than men. Um, that's not not a great surprise, but it is a great shame. Um, so so that's one thing, and I and I also think that. Um, just generally, we don't t- think about the, the, the mental health impacts of long-term illness and, and the, the, the models around disability that we conceptualise haven't taken that sort of duality into account. So you mentioned the sort of biopsychosocial, and that's that's kind of the model that we're, we're trying to apply within our own organisation. So because it's more holistic and it has more of a crossover. So... Do all of the organisations that you work with apply similar things or is that part of the role of Face Equality International to try and bring that sort of uh, theoretical models and thinking and and conceptualisation to them? So our role primarily is to be a capacity builder for these organisations to have a stake in the Face Equality campaign. So recognizing the big long-term vision of creating a a society that respects difference and that is free of stigma and prejudice and we understand that a lot of the direct intervention that is needed with these individuals with disfigurements is as a result of lack of awareness and ignorance and just poor societal attitudes so we're all about that big long-term focus counteracting stigma um, rather than us being responsible for that direct intervention however we where appropriate will build our coalition on the basis that we can facilitate our member organizations to learn from each other because there is a lot of expertise across this very niche area 
um, that so often is quite siloed and doesn't necessarily get shared. So granted, cultural nuance and differences are not to be disregarded. However, largely the experiences and the interventions required interventions required um there's a lot of learning that can go on across our membership and, and we facilitate that via we just had our annual conference um and they have the ability to network and learn from each other and hopefully not have to reinvent the wheel because we are all largely working towards the same thing and there's some brilliant resources that have been developed one of them um that's here in the UK is a self-guided cognitive behavioral therapy tool for people with facial differences um, and that's both available for adults and for young people then we run a session with our members on okay how is this well researched because it came out of a university could this be a tool that actually is taken and and adapted for each of our member organizations and how can we facilitate that so we we do that capacity building and, and that community building in the hope that we can be stronger together. Great. So uh, another question. So you mentioned the, the, the challenge of, of social media. So um, thank you for you know, stepping up and, 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 and coming and joining us because we know that you've just mentioned it's challenging. So... Some of it is how people react, but some of it is also algorithmic bias, right? So there's this innate bias because people, uh, you know, people have made these assumptions and they've taken their biases into the creation of the filters and the mechanisms. So how have any of the social media uh, platforms engaged with you to, to try and address this? So we we are currently in the process of trying to reach Twitter um, with this blurred out, marked, sensitive content. Um, and we're allowing that opportunity to work collaboratively with Twitter because we know that it's really important to ensure that the experiences of our community are built into the way that the platform is mon like moderated and just pointing the finger and not offering any opportunity to really influence the way that it's run is not going to work. No. And the same goes for earlier on in the summer, there was a horrendous trend that kicked off on TikTok that was referring to one of our ambassadors, a guy called John O'Lancaster, who has Treacher Collins syndrome. Um, and he was involved in a trend where someone had stolen his photo and it was attached to some really awful dehumanizing language. He was being referred to as subhuman. And that trend was allowed to reach millions and millions of people on TikTok without being dealt with. And again, we knew that there that yes, we could call Twitter out and we were successful in gathering kind of a reaction and some momentum when we were calling this stuff out. But we are now in the process of figuring out how we can work collaboratively with TikTok and other platforms because it's very clear when language is 
ableist or racist or at least more clear than it is language that's offensive around disfigurement so calling someone ugly for example when it's not someone with a disfigurement taken out of context might not be flagged and the sorts of language like monster and all sorts of horrendous kind of examples of language that might not be flagged up because they're just not seen as outright discriminatory towards people with disfigurements and also just in terms of reporting as well I think things have progressed a little bit but I know that in the past when you report something that's hateful content or discriminatory there might be a tick box to say which protected characteristic it violates or which protected characteristic it's kind of offending and disfigurement isn't one of those so it's really really problematic and that social media is an incredible thing in terms of building communities and it's so vital particularly throughout the pandemic and with people who perhaps have never met someone with the same condition or the same experience however it's also built to it's you know it's built on systems that are really really disproportionately affecting people with disfigurements and disabilities And Tony, did you want to follow up? No, I, I was. I wanted to follow on the on the on the previous uh, on the previous topic. No, but uh, I, on, on in in relation in relation to the social media channels, I feel that sometimes people are doing the, the moderation. They are not you know, trained or going to programs that would allow them to understand the different cultural nuances of social media and the different communities around the world. And sometimes the things get into their desk or to their computers and they don't really know what to do with it or they don't really understand it. So, uh, and and you might end up in a conversation with them, but no, the knowledge is not there. So I think it, it's very challenging. And what's a massive kind of, what adds insult to injury, <laughs> pun perhaps intended, is when someone does report something when someone you know says okay this is not okay I'm going to feel empowered and I'm going to do something about this to then be told that something doesn't breach community guidelines is really difficult to have to deal with so this experience which is completely violated and dehumanized me clearly is not a violation of whatever platform this is their community guidelines that's just awful yeah, it, it compounds the 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 pain of the the original uh, insult. So, gosh, there's there's a lot here. We 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 do understand the difficulties that social media can bring, but we like you try and bring positivity through community. So, um, hopefully, you'll find our little corner of social media is going to be really positive. Um, we're looking forward to you joining us for that I mean one last thing I mean you were talking about the imagery in the media and we know we talked with James previously about the uh, portrayal of villains the Bond movie recently uh, you know again repeated the same trope <sighs> how can we get 
people that are producing movies to be a little bit more imaginative about how we portray villains. So this this issue is twofold because yes, it is demonizing, vilifying an entire community. And I think the the response we always get always oh, like, oh, it's just a film, it's not real. People can tell the difference between real life and make-believe. And that's absolutely not the case. I think it's so insidious, it's so underlying. And when representation of disfigurement is so minimal as it is when the only time you see someone with a scar on screen and I'm not to say that there aren't any positive examples there are a handful but nine times out of ten it is a bond villain it is someone to fear someone not to trust and someone to be scared of and when it's what's really heartbreaking to me personally is when I see this in films and tv and books that are geared towards children it's kind of like okay what are they going to think when they first meet me are they going to be scared of me and I've had people say like I've had when I've gone into schools I've had young kids say your face is scary and I don't like it and that just hurts so why why are responsible filmmakers who have all of these creative devices at their hands and should be truly creative why are they using this lazy old trope that is just one unnecessary and two really really harmful to an entire community and the other prong to this which has so many parallels with other equality issues but in particular disability is the fact that people with this actual experience are not getting the role so they will bring in an actor and have them made up with prosthetics. So in Wonder, for example, in the latest Bond film, and what was really pleasing to see this past week was Eddie Redmayne was apologising for when he played a trans woman in a film and he was saying that it was a mistake, but I don't know whether he's yet acknowledged or apologised for playing Stephen Hawking and again taking that opportunity from someone within a marginalized overlooked community so it's really interesting and there's a lot to do in this space and we will continue to have people tell us that we are snowflakes and that we need to just appreciate these films and particularly when these films are so beloved and so famous people get really defensive when we try to call them out and we're not trying to cancel these films or these actors we're just trying to work collaboratively to be better and to influence things so that people have opportunities but also so that we're not telling future generations again to fear difference to not trust difference and to see these people as less than because the effect of this does last for generations. These films will be around for a long time and we just need to stop. Yes. Yeah, and you touched on the point of, of, of children initially and you know, we had previous conversations on, on, on the topic and one of our men was telling, was telling us that you know, sometimes uh, children, they approach me that they are curious about myself, but the parents say, oh, just don't go there. 
and I, and I have to engage with the parents and say, no, it's fine, no, it's fine, let them let let them let him come in. So this kind of a it's it's very very present in society, yeah. you know, and the the movies with children are particularly worrying. Those 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 movies that target kid children, yeah. Yeah, and I think you hit on something really important there as well, and something that we try to actively talk about is the importance of kind of nurturing that in inquisitiveness, that like that honest, like pure childlike. Oh, like what happened to you, or mommy, mommy? That that person looks different, um, and that's completely natural. But you shut that down, a parent like drags you away, then it just completely tells that child that there's something wrong and completely stifles that opportunity to build a human connection and to learn and to see that person as equal. And we hear about that all of the time. And sometimes young people are a lot easier to influence than adults. And I think it's the adults that have been exposed to all of this biased media representation and we're all about shame-free, open conversations. Come in. We're not going to cancel you. We're not going to call you out for stumbling over the right terminology because things are constantly evolving. Um, but it's yeah, it's just about hopefully moving forward and building this culture where we want to be better and we want to be more respectful of each other as human beings. Like, is that too much to ask? No, it's not. No, it's not. Uh, I think we should all be able to expect that. So we've reached the end of our time. It's It's gone too fast. Uh, I'm really looking forward to you joining us on Twitter on Tuesday. Need to thank Barclays Access, my clear text and my link for helping keep us on air and lights on and as captioned. So thank you very much for the day. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to it.